Chapter 35 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35 Demerara. The coast of Guinea, indeed of all the countries between the Amazons and the Gulf of Paria, a stretch of upwards of a thousand miles, is one of the strangest and most dreary in the world, rich though the inner country may be. For here the silt brought down by many mighty rivers, notably the Amazon and Orinoco, has formed a broad strip of low alluvial land that extends far out seawards from the forest-clad hills. It is difficult to distinguish where these vast plains terminate, and the sea begins, for the slope is so gradual that the mariner can find soundings when yet a day's sail from the coast, and a vessel can drive ashore and be broken up by the heavy rollers on the shoals, though from the masthead no land be visible. And to mariners thus wrecked, poor is the prospect of escape in the boats, for if they are not swamped by the breakers and reach smoother water, they can go on for long leagues, but the sea very gradually shallowing till there be but a few feet of water under them, and going further they will find vegetation indeed, but not land, for dense groves of mangroves grow out into the sea and in places forests of huge trees. And now the boat can go no further, nor can the men proceed on foot, for the mud underneath is soft as butter and deep, so that one venturing on it will sink wholly in it. Indeed, it appears a hopeless land of slime and fever, quite unfitted for man, unless it be for the tree Indians, a low race of fish-eating savages that, like birds, build their homes among the branches of the flooded forests on the Gulf of Paria. But within this outlying waste of mud, there lies one of the most fertile countries of the world. If one ascends any of the creeks or rivers that pierce the outer swamps and afford the sole means of communication to the interior, he will find himself among the richest plains of earth where are cultivated sugar, cocoa, and all tropical produce, while further inland are mountains and valleys covered with one dense primeval forest of the rarest cabinet woods. But this latter, yet unexplored, is inhabited only by Indian tribes, cannibals some of them, for the settlements of the few white men are solely on the very unhealthy but fertile low-lying coast region, chiefly at the mouths of the rivers. At midday, January the 31st, we were, as I have said, about 20 miles from the nearest land, near the river Suriname. The lightship that lies off the mouth of the Berbice River, and which is moored about 12 miles out to sea, was now but 130 miles distant, and for this I now shaped a direct course. As I had no chart, and knew not how far out to sea the tongues of the shoals might extend, I took casts of the lead at frequent intervals. So soft is the bottom hereabouts that it is difficult to feel when the lead reaches it, and about a foot must be deducted from the depth indicated to allow for the sinking into the mud. A fresh east-northeast wind, driving us on at the rate of seven knots an hour, blew during the night, yet a heavy haze lay on the ocean. The soundings decreased as we advanced till at 3 a.m. we found but three fathoms of water, so we hauled two points to windward and got into the line of five fathom soundings. We were then off the mouth of the great Corentin River that divides British from Dutch Guinea. At 6 a.m. the soundings quite suddenly fell to three fathoms, and we found ourselves in the midst of very heavy and dangerous rollers. 
These were so high and steep that we had at once to haul our wind and make for deeper water. For upwards of ten minutes we were in real peril of foundering. A heavy-laden merchant vessel would certainly have gone down. As we crossed these waves, our motion was so extremely violent that I fully expected to see the mast chucked right over the bows at any moment. Each sea washed over us, filling our decks with water. I was in charge of the deck at that time. The tremendous jerks, the noise, and the alarming angles the vessel assumed, sometimes seeming to stand almost on end, brought up the watch below, who fully expected to find that we had driven on shore among the breakers and were fast tumbling to pieces. But the falcon behaved admirably, as usual, and after steering seaward for a quarter of an hour, we reached the six-fathom soundings and were in comparatively smooth water again. I learnt afterwards at Georgetown that the rollers, which, breaking more or less heavily, are always to be met with on this shoal, are a well-known danger to the mariners of this coast, and that many a vessel had not come out of them to tell the tale as we did, but has gone down with all hands. At 9 a.m. we passed close to the Berbice lightship and perceived on our port hand land once more, and, what is more, English land, the first that I had seen since I had sailed out of Falmouth Harbor. We coasted along the shore in four-fathom soundings, the sea being quite smooth and of a reddish tint. The shore here does not present so desolate an appearance from the seas as it does to the east or west of the British colony. We saw a long low line of forest, above which at intervals rose the lofty chimneys of the sugar factories. We passed many of the colony craft, shallow but fast, sloops and schooners, very different in build to the coasters of Brazil that we had hitherto seen. In the afternoon we sighted the lighthouse and the shipping at the mouth of the Demerara River. Following the instructions of my friend, the German skipper, I sailed on till these bore south-southwest and then made straight for the entrance to the river, finding nowhere water less than three fathoms. At 4 p.m. we were within the Demerara and dropped our anchor off the fort. The captain of the port soon came off to us, gave us practique, and kindly piloted us to a convenient berth just in front of Georgetown Marketplace, near the landing stage of the steam ferry that affords communication between one side of the river and the other. Having stowed our canvas, we now looked around us. The town that stretched in front of us on the right bank of the river was certainly quite unlike any city I had yet seen in tropical America in every respect. At a glance, one could perceive that this was a British, not a Spanish or Portuguese, settlement. None of the massive, quaint old houses of stone here, none of the irregular streets as of Bahia, the dirt and careless and tidiness, but brand new, unhandsome, but very practical and comfortable buildings of wood and corrugated iron sheets, cleanliness and order. What chiefly puzzled my crew was that all the Negroes that passed us in canoes and rafts spoke English to each other. It was evidently quite a new idea to my Italians, who imagined that all blacks spoke Portuguese alone. I must confess I felt somewhat as they did. It hardly seemed natural to me when I went on shore to hear my native tongue spoken by everyone around me, black, yellow, or white, and I was constantly addressing people at first in Portuguese and Spanish. On the morrow, after my arrival in port, I landed on the stelling by the market and proceeded to inspect the town. The clean, tidy dress of the black and creole policemen, the Zawavi uniform of the soldiers, forcibly brought to my mind that I was no longer in a foreign colony. 
The streets of Georgetown are wide and regular, the houses are of wood with corrugated iron roofs, and all are erected on piles, standing as it were on stilts. Thus the ground floor, to explain myself by a bull, is some fourteen feet above the ground. The object of this style of architecture is to avoid the malaria that floats along the surface of the soil. It has been found in all these countries that if the dwelling rooms be thus raised some feet from the ground, the miasma is wholly avoided, or nearly so. In many parts of the north coast of South America, especially on the Spanish main, to sleep one night on the surface of the soil is nearly always fatal, so deadly are the malarious emanations. What constitutes the great charm of Georgetown is that the glorious vegetation of the country has not been excluded from it, but grows in luxuriance between the houses. Viewed from the summit of the lighthouse, Georgetown presents not the appearance of a city, but of a lovely grove of tall palms and many flower-covered trees and bushes, with habitations scattered through it. The residential houses are built in the comfortable East Indian style, with verandas surrounding them. Each stands in its own garden. There are streets in Georgetown that are more like botanical gardens than streets, to which the tropical hothouses of Kew are very deserts. There is one very broad street at the back of Government House, the name of which I forgot. The excellent Georgetown Club, of which I was an honorary member during my stay, is in it. And of it, Georgetown should be proud. Along both sides of it are villas and wonderful gardens. In its center, between shady avenues of trees, flows a sluggish canal, entirely covered with the magnificent Victoria Regia lilies. There is a botanical garden outside Georgetown, but the skill of man cannot outdo the splendors of the vegetation that will spring up anywhere in this land where allowed to do so. The population of Georgetown is indeed cosmopolitan, for four continents are here abundantly represented. The Europeans are, of course, much in the minority. Of these, the Portuguese are the most numerous. The small tradesmen and artificer class being largely made up of these frugal people. The Englishmen here are among the most agreeable and hospitable of their race. It was here I began to learn what was meant by West Indian hospitality. After the hospitality of my countrymen in this colony, the next thing that the stranger observes is their hats. I do not think any town presents the spectacle of so varied a collection of headgear. You could not wear anything that would be considered eccentric at Georgetown in the way of hats. Of course, first there are the pith helmets of every kind, straw hats of infinite breadth of brim, but it is, after all, in white felt hats that the inhabitants show their ingenuity most. And high above them all towers the stupendous pyramid that graces the head of a certain popular and respected crown officer. After the white, nankeen-jacketed, much-hatted Britisher come the representatives of Africa, the descendants of the black slaves, here a very worthless and vicious class. America is represented by nearly naked, stunted Red Indians who come down the river in their canoes from the interior to barter bows and arrows, skins of wild beasts, and other curiosities in the capital, and get dead drunk with the proceeds. Then we have the Asiatic coolies, who are as numerous as the blacks. First, the inscrutable Chinese, who have their own quarter, and, more frugal than even the Portuguese, are gradually cutting out the latter as small tradesmen. 
than the Hindus, nude save for the scanty loincloth, slim of limb, and though of the lowest castes, beautiful and with high noble heads, sad gentlemen who, quarter-staff in hand, walk softly through the streets, men of an antique civilization who look with contempt on their fellow laborers, the Africans and American Indians, with their heavy animal faces, who never have had and never will have a civilization. So many friends did I have in Georgetown, and so agreeably did time fly, that I extended my stay to a fortnight. The town was fairly healthy while I was there, though there was some yellow fever. A frightful epidemic of this pest of South America had been, till recently, raging in Demerara and in the southern Antilles, but was now dying away. In Georgetown, the fever had proved most fatal to the upper-class white residents and the officers of the garrison, not, as usual, being chiefly prevalent among the shipping in the river in the low quarters of the city. In consequence of this, the white troops had now all been sent home, the Negro regiment alone remaining. So great had been the mortality among the Europeans that the constant dances that so characterized Demereran and West Indian life were now conspicuous by their absence, for all were mourning many friends, if not relations, and a gloom hung over the usually gay and lively population. As a rule, Georgetown is as healthy as any city of tropical America. Everywhere in the neighborhood of Georgetown, the jungle is cleared, and great plantations of sugar wave in the trade wind. The country looks as if it ought to be the most unhealthy in the world, yet it is far from being that. It is but one vast plain of mud, drained by innumerable canals and ditches which afford passages to canoes. It is no wonder that the Dutch seized this colony that, to other peoples, would have appeared the most uninviting portion of all the South American coast, for it must have strongly reminded them of their native land. Demerara is a tropical Holland, as skillfully dammed, canaled, and irrigated as is the European home of its first possessors. Much of this rich land has been conquered from the ocean. Great sea walls of faggots overlaid with stones keep out the water at high tide, which would otherwise then overflow the plantations. At low tide, the gates in this wall are open, so that the pent-in waters from the canals and drains find exit to the sea. Sometimes, after a spring tide, the soft mud accumulates in banks outside these dikes, and, being higher than the level of the reclaimed land, prevents this outdrainage. Then very regiments of coolies have to dig channels through the vast slimy mess, a seemingly Herculean task, till the imprisoned waters of the estates are released. There is no genuine terra firma in this colony, that is, in the cultivated coast regions. The dry earth forms but a thin crust over practically bottomless mud. Hence, it has been found very difficult to erect really heavy buildings they are certain to gradually sink. When the heavy machinery of the sugar factories was first introduced, great difficulties in this respect were experienced. As there is no stone in the neighborhood of Georgetown, the few roads are paved in an ingenious manner. First, brushwood is laid down on the road and fired. The mud that is dug out of the canals or ditches that border every thoroughfare here is then piled on the blazing pile. The fire bakes this into a very hard red brick-like substance, which, broken up, makes very fair macadam. 
Having obtained the necessary permission to land there, I started one morning to visit the penal settlement on the Mazaruni River. The little passenger steamer that ascends the Esquibo calls at the settlement, accomplishing the voyage in about six hours. We steamed along the muddy, shallow water till we came to the broad mouth of the Esquibo and entered the river by one of the channels between the many islands that encumber this estuary. Great shallow islands, these, formed of the alluvial matter brought down from the interior, and all covered with a dense vegetation. One of these, the Dauntless Bank, has been but recently formed, having grown round the wreck of a vessel of the same name. This nucleus was sufficient to collect in a few years an immense mass of mud and sand, and there is now quite a large island covered with lofty vegetation. I visited it later on with some friends in a schooner, having been promised considerable sport, but save for shooting some scarlet ibis and catching some small mullet with a seine net, after wading all day up to our waists in poisonous mud, we did nothing. The low banks of the Esquibo are covered with a rank vegetation, but through the openings formed by the creeks are to be seen glimpses of the plantations of sugar cane that lie behind. After passing a small island, on which stood the ruins of an old Dutch fort, the scenery became more picturesque. The banks were higher and clothed with forest, and rocky islets rose above the water, showing that we were now so far in the interior of the country as to have reached genuine terra firma once again and had passed the belt of bottomless mud. We steamed by a long island, which I observed was unlike the others, inhabited. There were many huts on it, cattle and cultivated patches of cassava and plantains. This was, I was informed, Cow Island, the leper island of the colony. All who are affected with this fearful disease are sent here. There are no boats on the island, as the lepers are not allowed to leave it on any pretense. Soon after passing this, we came to where the three rivers Esequibo, Mazaruni, and Cuyuni join. It is here, on a bluff some hundred feet high, sloping down to the first-named river, a most picturesque position, that the penal settlement is established. I was well piloted over this establishment, for my friend, Captain Fortescue, the inspector of prisons for the colony, luckily happened to have come up on the steamer with me. Landing with him, I was introduced to the governor, with whom I stayed until the steamer started back for Georgetown on the morrow. This is, indeed, a model penal settlement. If any fault can be found with it, it is that the most healthy, beautiful, and in every respect most desirable spot of the colonized portion of British Guinea has been selected as a residence of malefactors. Here, at an elevation sufficient to be almost entirely free from the malaria, the buildings connected with the settlement are scattered over an undulating expanse of lawn and garden, backed behind by a primeval forest that extends to Venezuela. These buildings have a singularly cheerful and unprison-like appearance. All have been constructed by the labor of the convicts. Indeed, this penal colony is, I believe, entirely independent of the outer world for all its necessities. The prisoners grow their own sugar canes and make their own sugar. They cultivate an extensive provision ground, breed cattle and sheep, work in the nice quarries where comes the only stone used in muddy Demerara, and are employed in a dozen other industries at least. The convicts are nearly all Chinese, East Indian coolies, and blacks. Of Europeans there are not many. 
There were but two Englishmen among them when I was there, but generally there are to be found a few Frenchmen. These are runaway convicts from the French penal colony of Cayenne. They manage to steal boats occasionally and to escape, a dozen or so at a time, to British Guinea. As they are, for the most part, regular mauvais sujets, they generally renew their old games in Demerara, are convicted of some crime, and packed off to Mazaruni. The Hindu coolies give the prison authorities much trouble, for, when condemned to penal servitude for long terms of years, they are much given to committing suicide. Notwithstanding every precaution, instances of this are of frequent occurrence. They proceed to a happy despatch in a most deliberate manner. Being deprived of knives and any ordinary implements of a destruction, they will choke themselves with their loin girdles. Those that are suspected of the suicidal tendency are watched with unceasing vigilance. The cemetery of the settlement is also the flower garden, a lovely spot thickly grown with the most gorgeous plants of the tropic zone. Behind the enclosure of the prison ground stretches, as I have said before, the primeval forest that extends to Venezuela. The black warders entertain a wholesome dread of this unknown waste, for a fixed idea exists among them that an invading Venezuelan army will one day march out of it upon the British colony. It seems that Venezuela did, or does, lay claim to this portion of Guinea, whereas the English lay down the frontier as upwards of a hundred miles to the northwest of this. Venezuelans have been known to issue out of the depths of this forest and make their appearance at the convict settlement, but these, far from being invaders, are unfortunate fugitives who, after the collapse of their party in one of the usual revolutionary wars that so adorn the history of all South American republics, travel through dense jungle to seek protection on British soil. These weary, tattered foreigners, speaking a strange tongue, cause a good deal of unnecessary panic among the blacks when they appear among them. But that the poor wretches should be for a moment mistaken for ferocious invaders is indeed curious. Just as the steamer was starting the next morning, I perceived, as I stood on the bridge, a long canoe come alongside, manned by nude aborigines. These Indians were a better-looking race than I had seen in the Chaco and Pampas, and certainly a far less ferocious countenance. Their faces wore a fixed expression of apathetic content and mildness of disposition. The women were hideous, and the copper bodies of the men were ornamented with stripes of black paint. Several of them came on board to take a passage to Georgetown, carrying with them bows and arrows, cassava crushers, skins of birds, and the logs of wood with which they poison the rivers and so secure the fish. These curiosities they would sell to the Chinese and Portuguese curiosity shopkeepers for a little silver coin, or plenty of bad rum, or maybe one of those extraordinary guns that are expressly imported for their benefit, like the child's toy gun in appearance and scarcely more use. I believe they are known as buck guns to the trade, not that they are intended to shoot bucks or anything else, but simply to be sold to buck Indians, as the male aborigines are politely called by their white rulers. One of these Indians must have been a chieftain, for he owned a pair of nankeen trousers, not being girdled around the loins merely like the others. He did not wear his trousers during the voyage, however, but kept them carefully folded under his arm till we were near Georgetown, 
when he deliberately, with a gravity and unconsciousness that were delicious, put them on before all the passengers on the main deck. Then his followers clustered around him admiringly, felt the texture of the material, and expressed approval in their soft, sleepy-sounding language. I should have much liked to have undertaken an expedition into the interior of Guinea, one of the most grand of tropical countries, though but little known and explored. But the costs of such a trip are heavy unless one has companions to share them. Mr. Barrington Brown's descriptions of the renowned Roraima Mountains and the Kayatir Falls, which latter he himself discovered, are indeed tempting to all who love the wonders of nature. End of chapter 35